0: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we are in part two of the series called Jesus Hates. Hey, we're doing something new around here is that uh, every series we're having like a special focus area of how we're uh, trying to commit to grow deeper in our faith. So if you're with us for the last series on miracles, uh, you might remember the challenge was the entire month of February. We're doing one chapter, one reading of the Bible, one chapter at a time. Every day in February, we're doing one chapter of the book of Acts. 28 days, 28 chapters. It was perfect. Well, there's 31 days so uh, in March, so we're going to read 1 Samuel together. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to. Mixing things up a little bit here. This time, the challenge, if you got one of these when you came in today, on the back, there's a Grow Deeper challenge. What we're doing is we're, we're trying to challenge everybody here to identify one area of your life. Maybe it's a belief that you hold, or maybe it's a behavior that you're involved in. Identify one area that you're going to be challenged to give over to God. is to change that, to bring it into alignment with what God God teaches us in the Bible. And so specifically the challenge is just throughout this month of March, throughout this series, just pray about it. Just ask God, hey, what's one behavior or one belief that I hold, God, that maybe you wouldn't want me to? Or what's one behavior, one thing that I need to change to come on into alignment more with you? And so that's what we're doing throughout this Jesus Hates series, is to try to practice truth, our value around here, and bring our beliefs and our behaviors more in line with what God teaches us. Uh, Part one of this series was about how Jesus hates God injustice. And we heard the story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple last week when we found out that Jesus isn't only a meek and mild, gentle uh, Jesus, but he is also a passionate one. He also gets angry about some things. And today we continue that on and we hear about how Jesus hates empty, hollow, vapid, void Religion. I want to share a story uh, to start us off with. Um, it's kind of embarrassing, mostly for me, but also uh, for somebody else in my family. Uh, so I thought that'd be a perfect story to share with you all. Um, I was maybe 12, 13 years old, and my older brother, for the first time in our family, had brought a girl home to celebrate Christmas with our weird family. And I thought, hey, this is going to be great. I want to kind of like welcome her into the family as like a 12-year-old. And this, the, way, the best way that I knew how to do that is just to, to embarrass her in front of everybody. So like that kind of stinks. But hey, I thought it was hilarious at the time. Uh, so what do I do to embarrass her? I, I, I go and I get her a present and I wrap it in the largest box that I can find right? It's like a refrigerator-sized box. I'm not exaggerating when I say that when you saw this present that took about six rolls of wrapping paper to go through to wrap this whole thing, when we set it next to the Christmas tree, I'm not exaggerating, it was bigger than the Christmas tree. So when she turns around in the corner and she sees this giant present with her name on it, she's like, what am I getting myself into? What did this kid give me, right? And so it gets better. Because on the inside of that giant present with her name on it, I wrapped up a half dozen other smaller presents. And I'm so clever. And I think I'm so funny. And I'm just laughing uproariously over in the corner. Meanwhile, she's like, oh my goodness. She opens up the big present and and nothing in there. And so there she sees there's hidden inside a half dozen other presents. So, So she reaches those out and she starts opening up those. And on the inside of those, no, it's not more presents. I know you're thinking it, but it tricked, tricked you, tricked her. And, and on the inside of those, I said, I wrote a simple note and I said, nope, not this one. Try again. All right. <laughs> so she opens up the next one and then same note and the next one, same note. And she just like, this continues on 10, 12, 15 minutes of all of us just watching her open empty boxes. And I'm the only one laughing in the corner. And after she gets done opening the very last present, I'm just like, I'm having, I've am i had so much fun with this whole thing. And I didn't care that. I was the only one laughing. And I finally just hand her a gift card and say, here, every box was empty that she opened. There wasn't anything in any of those. Again, I think that it's hilarious. She, her, not so much. And so I just want to say my brother after this whole thing, Thanks so much. Uh, He ends up marrying her. And so, like, Jenny, if you're watching or if you're listening, like, I'm sorry. And also, welcome to the (laughs) weird family that we have. Um, I know it's, like, embarrassing. Nobody wants to open an empty box, especially if it's a present that we're, we're expecting something great, and you open it up, and there's, like, literally, there's nothing inside. Or maybe it's a note that just tells you that there's nothing inside. Nobody wants to open up a gift like that, a promise like that. And so what we're doing today He's saying, look, how sometimes we offer gifts to God that are like that empty present. That sometimes it's possible that the songs that we sing, maybe even the messages that we give or hear, maybe even the lives that we live are like that empty, hollow, vapid present. And I think that Jesus hates it. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter f- 15. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 15 it starts off in the story like this. As at Matthew 15 verse 1 says that uh, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Uh, they, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And you're like, that's probably unsanitary. They should really wash their hands. It goes far deeper than that, right? Your kids or my kids approach the dinner table with the gooey, sticky hands, and we're like, no, go back. You're not sitting at my table with that. Wash your hands and then come around. For them, it was something so much more. Uh, For them, it was a ceremonial ritual. You see, what had happened hundreds of years before this conversation, before the time of Jesus, uh, the Babylonians had come and they had destroyed uh, the temple. They had taken the Israelite people, the Jewish people, away from Jerusalem, away from the presence of God into captivity in Babylon. And so these people had to learn for the first time, how do we practice our faith Without being in God's presence, how do, how do we practice our faith without the rituals that we've been accustomed to for so long? And so they start to, start to develop these micro-rituals or these habits. One of them was that they remember that when we went into, they went into the presence of God, they would have a habit or ritual of washing. Now, there wasn't anything significant about the washing itself, but it was what the washing pointed towards. And in that case, they washed as a way to say, no, there's something unique. There's something set apart. There's something different about God. Is that He is inherently like, cleaner than, than I am and the kinds of things that I'm involved in. God is set apart. He's different. He's more holy. And to approach Him, the least that I can do is this demonstration that, like, I'm washing, I recognize that you're holier that you're set apart, that you're more special than I am. I recognize that. They did that in the temple. And so when they were brought into captivity in Babylon, they decided, well, if that's what we did in the temple, and if that was good enough when we approached God's table in the temple, maybe that's something we should participate in, in the temples of our homes, in in the tables of our homes. And so every time they would sit down around a meal, they would participate in this temple kinds of cleansing, this ceremonial washing. And they started to have all kinds of debates and start these conversations around what kind of washing was appropriate, what kind of washing was best, what is the best way to live out the faith that they had. And so they had a lot of conversations around these things, a lot of tension points. Throughout developing these micro rituals and these rules, you can start to tell that the mystery and the, and the significance and the spirituality of the act started to get sucked out of it. The, the joy almost kind of like left the act because it became hollow. They were just kind of going through this practice and it no longer pointed to anything beyond simply the tradition or beyond the rules. Now, every gospel story, tell, every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell this story, but everyone shares it a little unique. When we look at uh, a different one in Luke, he tells us that the washing had to do specifically with the cups. You see, there were two groups of people Uh, Two major groups. One of them said that when you wash, you really ought to only wash the inside of the cup. That's all you need to do. Then pour your wine or whatever you're drinking in the inside of the cup, wash your hands before each course, and that's good enough. That's honoring to God enough. Another group came along and said, no, no, we, we shouldn't just wash the inside of the cup. We need to wash the outside of the cup too. And then don't worry about washing your hands in between courses of the meal. That's good enough. And the one group followed Rabbi Hillal, they were the Hillites, and the other group was the Shamites. And the Hillites and the Shamites were roughly the same size, and they would have these spiritual spirited debates around the best way to wash a cup. So when the Pharisees here invite Jesus and his disciples over for dinner, this is not simply like an exercise in hospitality. Oh, let's have this new young rabbi over for dinner and just get to know him and extend him a warm welcome. No, it's a test. They're inviting him over as a way to say, listen, are you inside of the cup and wash your hands in between courses? Or are you inside and outside of the cup and don't wash your hands? Are you a Hillite or a Shamite? Are you in or are you out? And Jesus and his disciples sit around at the table, and he blows their minds. Because what we just read, they don't wash at all. You see, for Jesus, it wasn't about the cups. Let me show you what I'm talking about in the next line in verse 3, where Jesus explains, and this is going to get a little weird Okay? So hang with me. I'm going to explain it as we go. But just know, it's going to get weird, and then I think it's going to get more, a little more clear after that. So verse 3, Jesus replies, And why do you break the command for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. That's the big one. That made the top ten. That was number five, ten commandments, honor your father and mother. You guys are like, there's a top ten commandments? Yes. Okay. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is, and it's in, uh, it's in quotes now, devoted to God, they are, to, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition." So that's about as clear as mud, right? You're like, how does that explain why they didn't wash their hands before they eat? Hang on with me here. Because we have a saying around here, especially if you're a guest, you have to know that every time we get to a weird or tricky part of the Bible, we're going to have the humility to say, even if it doesn't make any sense to us, even if it's not helpful in the least to us, we have the humility to say, it probably meant something to them then. There's probably a reason why Jesus said that. And there's probably a reason why thousands of people through thousands of years had copied and recopied these words because they found them important, even if we don't. In this case, I think we can start to see that what Jesus is referencing is this common practice to their day vent. There's two things at work here. There's number one, one of those top 10 commandments called honor your father and your mother, number five in Exodus 20, if you're counting. The other thing is this like air quote thing around there that was about uh, being de- devoting something to God. So devoting something to God in the first century in, in Jerusalem was actually a spiritual and a legal declaration to declare something, to devote something to God. It had a legal standing both in the church and outside, in the government as well, that something was devoted to God. It was set apart. It was now his. The practice of that was declaring something Corbin. Let's all say Corbin together. One, two, three. Corbin means devoting to God. Now, you could declare anything Corbin. You could declare money as Corbin declaring uh, declaring it for God. You could declare property, a home, real estate. You could declare a field Corbin. You could even declare a person, Corbin, devoted to God. Now, that's a pretty good practice. That's why they had it. If you wanted to hand something over, declare it Corbin. But what started happening in Jesus' day was that parents, moms and dads, would lend their kids some money. Let's call it tuition assistance. No, not really, but maybe they were gonna buy a field. That's probably a better example, a little less real for us. Uh, And and they'd help their kid out and and they'd sacrifice monumentally, maybe $50,000, maybe $100,000 to help their kid to buy this field. So that's what they can do with their life is to work that field and earn an income. The parents would lend them the money And say, you're going to pay me back as you work the field a little bit at a time. The kids would then receive that money by the field. But instead of paying the parents back a little bit over a long period of time, they would then immediately declare the field Corbin, devoted to God. And they would say, Mom and Dad, I would love to pay you back for the loan that you gave, but I actually don't have any assets to my name. I'm just a manager or a steward of this field. If I could, you got to believe me that I would. And so what started to happen in Jesus' day was that these kids, or anybody, anybody who owed anybody else any money, would just start declaring their things as Corbin. Some of it would maybe go over to the temple treasury, but not everything. They would declare their boats as Corbin. But don't worry, I'll manage it. I'll make sure to wash it and take it out on the weekends. (laughs) They would declare their homes, their fields, everything they had as Corbin. And they would maintain stewardship of it, management of it. But it also meant that they would never have to repay anybody for the loans that they were given. And Jesus is looking at these things. And he uses the father and mother thing, I think, because it's just a really good example. He's going, come on, like, wait a second. This is what you're saying. You're saying that your mom and dad, fifth commandment, gifted you or loaned you some money and you said you were going to pay them back. But instead of paying them back, you put my name on it? You slapped God's name on this thing and said, oh no, it's devoted to God. It's Corbin. I can't pay you back. You're ripping people off in the name of God. God. And do you think I'm okay with that? Jesus here is going, I'm not. It's disgusting. It's vile. You don't get to do that in my name. Knock it off. For Jesus, this conversation is not about the cups. It's about the life. That they lived. I think sometimes we go through life and we're very interested in having conversations about the cups. I think it's easy to kind of go through life and to talk about God, and to talk about the sermon, and to talk about small group, or to talk about the Bible without ever allowing it to convict our hearts to the core. And Jesus is here to tell them and to tell you it's not about the cups. Like, it's about something else. And he builds on that. He gets to that in the very next line in verse 7, where Jesus says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And this is quoting Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts Are far from me. They worship me in vain, in emptiness. Their worship is hollow. What's interesting about that is that Jesus, he picks up on this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah way back when, and he says, Isaiah prophesied about you, and he looks around to his contemporary day. And that just like allows us some tools of how we interpret scripture together because the way that Jesus said is like, you know, Isaiah was not talking about first century uh, Pharisees. He was talking about his people then. And so Jesus goes, you know, Isaiah was talking about his people then, but because it's scripture, he was also inspired by the Holy Spirit to talk about you people today in his day. And so when we read it, and we read Jesus apply the words of Isaiah to his people then, we just kind of have to wonder if Jesus wouldn't maybe apply those words when they're applicable here today and say, is it true that we worship God? We honor God with our lips, but but our hearts are far from him that we worship, but it's, it's vain, it's vapid, it's hollow, it's empty. It's about the cups. Now, this is going to get a little real here for just a second because when I, say, when I say that the worship was in vain, don't raise your hands, don't put anything out, don't shout anything out, but just consider. What do you think of When I say worship, for many of us, what we think of when we think of as worship is typically what we do on the weekend's. Like when I think of worship I think okay church it's like gathering here with a with a bunch of us together in a room when, when I think of worship I, I I might think of maybe gathering in and and, and it's uh, it is maybe just this hour maybe just in this room if I had to get real specific on it, I might even set apart worship to say of the hour that we're in this roughly of the in this room together worship is the part of that hour that's maybe the the music and the song part of it. And, and like, that's that's worship. And this is the real part, because honestly, if there's anything that, that we have spirited debates over in the church, more than probably anything else in the church, it's probably that particular section of our worship together. It gets to the extent where, after having done this for a little while—I've been a pastor for about nine years— and I, I tend to work with some other churches around uh, that are going through some transition and just try to help them facilitate some things and, uh, and get things like on track and heading into a preferred future. And, uh, and one of the things I've started to warn churches for is to say, I just want you to be aware that a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, it is easier to replace your teaching or lead pastor than it is your worship pastor, And the reason for that is because people tend to have fewer insights and ideas and arguments over this time than what just happened a few minutes ago. And so I just want you to be aware of like what you're heading into when that season comes. Is that when we come at this, we have a lot of conversations around whether the cup should be washed in the inside and hands in between or inside and outside and skip the hands throughout the meal. And what Jesus is positing here is saying, you know what? I don't think it's about the cups. I don't think worship is about the songs that we sing at all. I think worship isn't about the songs we sing, but the lives that we live. I'll tell it to you like this. Um, So you've just experienced our worship around here. Um, One might declare that or or call that as a uh, loud and rowdy. That would actually... (laughs) Be my daughter's words. It's a loud church, all right? Uh, And I thought, hey, you know, we do this thing, and she only knows one thing, and that's cool. Um, I love that. I'm obviously a fan. But you know what? Like, she should probably be exposed to, to something else, too, because honestly, like, we're here almost every weekend, and when we're not, we're on vacation, we go to a church a lot like this one. So let's try something else. I remember it was Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so we wanted to go and, and, and pray and help out some women facing unexpected, unplanned, unwanted pregnancies, and I was invited to participate in that uh, service, and I thought, hey, right on, that's cool. So I'll bring my—she was a first grader at the time—I'll bring my daughter along and just kind of, like, check out this, like, whole new world in a Catholic church, Right, it's about the other end of the spectrum, I think, as you could go. So we walk into this thing, and I think for the first time, my daughter realized what churches are supposed to look like. <laughs> it's it's big, it's tall, there's glass everywhere. I mean, it's just it's go- it's objectively gorgeous, right? There's this giant indoor fountain, water fountain, like right inside, and she's like, "That is so cool." And I'm like, "Okay, just like prepare yourself, because when you get in, it's gonna like." Uh, It's going to be different, all right? Um, They're not going to have, like, words on the screen. You're not going to know any of the songs at all. And she's like, okay. She heads on in there, you know. But what do they do? They put, like, the song numbers up front. They post them. And then there's a book called a hymn book that just says the words to literally all the songs they're ever going to do. Like, the whole book is just, you're like, I know, I get what a hymn book is. Some of us don't. And she reads through the songs ahead of time so that by the time the number came up, she knew what all the words of the song were. And she could even ask me like what some of those words mean because she wasn't quite sure of them all. And so she was like fully engaged and present as we sang these songs she's never done before. And she's like, this is fantastic this is great. In fact, the only thing that she couldn't quite get past was that they had a choir who did a phenomenal job, but like she wasn't allowed to sing. She had to just listen. And She's like, I'd rather sing than just be sung too. And I'm like, I get you, Lil. I get you. That's understandable. But that's it. She's, we're on the way home from that experience. And she's like, dad, and it's like the voice, right? Where she's going to tell me this great declaration or this like understanding that she has, not realizing that I actually have a master's in divinity and like did this thing for a while. But she's like, dad, let me tell you about church. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) There are loud churches and there are quiet churches. (laughs) Our church is a loud church. And this one was a quiet church. And that's all. And I thought, how beautiful is that? Because when it comes to the worship of our God, the difference that she had identified was sometimes there's a loud church and sometimes there's a quiet church. And that and the Reformation is the only thing that separates us from the Catholic church. (laughs) No, but it's all in the name of Jesus. And I thought, how beautiful is that cool thing to be able to say Different styles, different songs, different ways for all the same God. And to take that just one small step further it's just how cool would it be if you could just imagine that God created so many different kinds of people And it's possible that our worship isn't done, that we're not done figuring out how to worship until we create styles, genres, ways of doing worship in here that matches the diversity of people that God created out there. And I think it's such a cool picture about how everybody is working together for the glory of God in their own local context. But this is totally beside deviation from the point that I'm trying to make here earlier. Is that we come, we come into worship and we think about it as the songs that we sing. And Jesus is going, no, it isn't about the songs we sing, but the lives that we live. It's about that heart posture that we come into it with. Could you imagine on Father's Day, I look forward to Father's Day all year round because it's my day to like sit on the couch, right? Have the kids bring something to me and, and uh, you know, have, have, them, uh, have them honor me. You know, think. I don't know if that's your expression of Father's Day, but I have yet to, maybe this year. We'll see, come tune. Come Laugh at all my jokes because they're the funniest jokes ever. Uh, no, um, could you imagine kids saying, Dad, I'm gonna honor you with a song. You know, it's an acapella song. And we each have a little part of the song that we wrote together. And could you imagine, like, midway through that song, it's like, nope, stop, shut it down. I like loud songs. Go into the kitchen, grab the pots, grab the pans, grab everything. Get somebody out here with ripped jeans on stage. We need a worship leader. Like, (laughs) worship isn't about the songs we sing. Worship is about the lives that we live and I want us to know, like, what's, what's at stake here? Because when we think about it as the songs, or when we think about worship, or we think about our devotion to Christ, we think about our faith, everything, as a weekend pursuit, as a small slice, we think about it as nothing more than just a hobby. And listen, church, I just want to tell you, if you take nothing out of this except for, nothing out of today except for this, is that Christianity makes a terrible hobby. You can do a lot of things on your weekends. You can go to your kids' soccer games. You can go running or you can go rock climbing or you can watch Netflix all weekend. It doesn't matter. You can have all kinds of hobbies. But I to just to tell you that Christianity makes a terrible hobby because it was meant for something so much more. It's like what we do when we view church or we view Christianity. It's just a hobby is to say, God, I'm going to give you this little slice of the pie of my life. And I'll maybe give you one slice at a time and maybe over time I'll expand it. And I'll give you a little bit bigger slice or a little bit bigger slice after that. But, but ultimately, God, you're never going to get anything more than a slice of that pie. When Jesus says, I am not and I refuse to be a slice of that pie. I'm not a slice of that pie. I'm the tin that all the pieces, all the slices of the pie fall into. We don't talk about giving a little bit more of our time over to God as if it wasn't all his to begin with. That Christianity wasn't ever designed to be a slice of the pie. Like we could trust him with just this much. Our faith in him would be just this much. If you do, if that is your faith, if that is your view... You will believe in a small, petty, helpless God who will not be able to be trusted and you will be disappointed and you will walk away. I have, I have friends who look at G uh, uh, Jerusalem. Grand Rapids here, and they're in, like, harder places in the country to start churches, like Portland or Manhattan or something like that, where we're just kind of, like, coming into what it means to be post-Christian. They've been doing that for a long time, and they look at this and be like, oh, man, Grand Rapids, that's, like, an easy place to do ministry or do church, and I'm like, maybe. I don't really know. I've only done one thing. However, like, what I bump into a lot of the times, just maybe check your heart, see if this is true for you, but what I bump into a lot of the time is that people tend to have found God One of two places. Uh, Oftentimes, it's either finding God at like sleepaway camp for the first time. And they go to camp and there's these awesome counselors who are super engaged and super fun. And they stand up on stage and they perform this like sketch or this skit about heaven, but really mostly hell. And And then the counselor pulls them aside afterwards and be like, so do you want to go to hell? And the kids are like, no! And they're like, great, let's pray together. You just became a Christian. And we believe that that, like, that that was it, that that worked. Or if you're a parent, you're on the other side of things. And when that terrifying moment comes where your kid asks you, Mom or Dad, like, what happens when I die? And it's not like my goldfish. It's not like when you die, Dad. It's like, what happens when I die? And you're going, what is the answer? And, and what, what do we do as parents? We say things like, well, Mom and Dad, we believe in Jesus, so we're going to heaven. Do you want to come with us? To heaven or not? And it's like, well, I wanna, well, let's do your thing. Great. Let's go see the pastor. Uh, and we laugh a little bit. But honestly, like, it's kind of scary though, isn't it? Because what are we doing? We're inoculating these kids to the gospel. We're inoculating ourselves. We may have even been that. And, and now we think that we've got this understanding about Jesus or we've got this understanding about faith because we know a lot of things about them. But really, we've just had these spirited debates over whether the inside of the cup and washing hands between courses or the inside and outside and no hands. We've just been talking about cups. John Maxwell has this awesome quote and he says, the average Christian is about 100 Bible verses overweight. And I love it because it's like, yes, it's not about learning more. It's about trusting God more. It's not about figuring it out this much more. It's about saying to Jesus, there is a way that my life is out of alignment with yours. Maybe it's a belief that I hold. Maybe it's a behavior that I possess, but it's not in line with you. Help me to practice truth. I trust you. I don't just want to leave with this fear that maybe what you have isn't the gospel. That what you have is a conversation about cups. I want to show you what this looks like because when we start to see it up close, it gets scary real for us because this one guy, Paul, wrote a church, wrote a letter to the church in Rome and he said, brothers and sisters, this is your your sacrifice. Present yourselves, your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know what it means to bring an animal to the temple, to kill it and to burn it all up till there's nothing left. That's a sacrifice. But you, you're different. You're alive, but no less devoted than the animal was on the altar. Whoa! Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, he says, this is your act of worship. Not about the songs you sing or the conversations of cups that you have. This is your act of worship. Presenting your whole self as a living sacrifice, the life of you live. And Paul, he lived it out. It was, like, it was like he lived for no one else's approval except for Jesus. It's like he didn't care about what anybody thought except for what God thought about him. And it got him into so much trouble. It got him into trouble with the state. It got him into trouble with the church in his day. It got him into so much trouble, but he didn't care because a a joy like that could not be taken away. You know, there was this time when they said, you know, we're done with you. I think it's just, we're over. I want want you to be out of here. We're going to kill you. We're going to execute you. And Paul said, that's fine. To die is gain. Do it quickly so I can meet my Savior faster. What do you do with a guy like that? And they said, instead of killing you, we'll just torture you for a long time. Wouldn't that be terrible? And he says, I consider it nothing. The present suffering, uh, incomparable compared to the, the future glory that I have in Jesus Christ. Go ahead. What do you do with a guy like that? Uh, we're just going to tuck you away. We're going to lock you away in a, in a prison, in a dungeon, and, and uh, forget about you, and you just waste your years. He's like, great. I'm going to tell every single person that I meet down there about the hope that I have about Jesus, and we're going to pray, and we're going to sing, and half the time there's going to be an earthquake, and we're going to get out of here anyway. What do you do with a guy like that? His hope cannot be taken away. We're going to send you on to go meet Caesar. Maybe he can slap some sense into you. You know, I've been wanting to tell Caesar and all of Rome about the hope that I have in Jesus my whole life. Go ahead and send me. He has a joy that cannot be taken away. There's one story when he he sets sail. He's on a missionary journey. And he's shipwrecked. And he ends up on shore. He decides to go make a fire. So he's collecting kindling and wood, and he gets bit by a poisonous snake. Church, if I'm ever in the place where I'm on a mission trip and I get shipwrecked and bit by a poisonous snake, I'm done. But not Paul. He shakes it off. He goes into town and he tells the people there about the hope that he has in Jesus because he has a joy in living for the approval and for the audience of just one. A joy that cannot be taken away. I want that. And it will not come from a faith that says that I'll just give him a slice at a time. Or I'm going to talk about him Instead of to Him. So if there's a challenge in here this week is that if you leave here, go out in your small groups, in your devotional time, in your personal prayers, in the car ride on the way home and say, I don't want to just talk about God anymore. I want Him to have reign and control in my life. I want Him to run my life instead of me. And I want to give one small area over to him. God, tell me what that is. And in return, he provides you with a joy that cannot be taken away. I you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, some of us need that joy today. Some of us need to hear that there's something more to all of this, something more than not not just church or something more, not just to a Bible study or a small group or work or family, but there's something more to life. Some of us need to be reminded that, that there's you and that there's this whole supernatural universe all around us. That you inhabit and that you invite us into. Some of us need to be reminded that just, just outside the reach of our own grasp, there's joy. And so, Jesus, come on into our hearts, come on into our lives. Help us reach out, do it for us. God, some of us are gonna give our lives to so many different things to work to hobbies, to weekend pursuits. God, in all grace, may church, may Christianity not be a weekend pursuit. God, if we give our lives to anything, may it be to the only one who takes our lives, sacrificed your own, and in return, gave it back. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.